Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 21. Last week, I began with what's known about the legendary Sea Peoples, and much of what's known comes from uncovered and translated Egyptian hieroglyphs. In that episode, I covered relics and records from Ramses II and III, along with Merneptah, three Egyptian pharaohs who sat on the throne between 1279 and 1155 BC. Do note that there were other, shorter reigning pharaohs in this period, but none of the records associated with those rulers mentions the Sea Peoples. It's also worth reminding that Ramses II is believed by many to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. This week, I'm continuing the history of the Sea Peoples, and picking up again in Egyptian records. And with that, let's get started. There is an ancient Egyptian papyrus that covers a bit of the history between the late 20th and the 22nd dynasties. This places it between about 1100 and 720 BC. It's also known as the Onomasticon of Amenanope, a name that's very off-putting. But do know that academics do what academics do, and one of the things they do is give elaborate names to things. An onomasticon is a listing of whatever the compiler considered important at the time. In this case, it's a listing of royal court officials, land ownership, buildings, tribes, and many other such items from the dynasties of the period. What makes it especially important to historians is that it not only lists out these things, but also the priesthood, the history of the Sea Peoples, and the geography and political organization of Canaan during both the late New Kingdom and the Third Intermediate Period. And why I'm bringing this up now is that the papyrus seems to indicate that the pharaohs of the period allowed the Sea Peoples to settle in Canaan. More specifically, Around the year 1100 BC, which would place the events towards the end of the 21st dynasty, which also places it just after the three pharaohs I covered last week. And what followed was a host of short reigning pharaohs, whose names are certainly not memorable. Not to forget, but this was also the beginning of the third intermediate period in Egypt. And recall that intermediate periods were times political and economic instability. But all of that is simply a restating of moments in time I covered when I recounted Egyptian history in Chapter 3 of the podcast. The reason it's popped back up again is that embedded in the document, and found just after the names of six places, of which four were located in Philistia, there was a list of people, including the Sheridan, Takur, and Peliset. The general belief and much of this is based on the relief images I covered last week. But the belief is that this list of people were alternate names, or maybe the tribal or familial names of groups of sea peoples. And, given their position on the list, the general assumption is that the people listed occupied the cities listed just before their names. As for the thought that the Egyptians allowed them to occupy the cities, This was likely another bit of internal Egyptian pharaoh puffery, or as we better know it, propaganda. There's another papyrus, known as the story of Winneman. It's a literary work 
thought to have been set in the fifth year of Pharaoh Ramses XI, who reigned between 1190 and 1077 BC. This places his rule during the period of the judges in Israel. As Saul took the throne in 1021 BC, 50 years after this was possibly written. As for the story, it's considered more as a work of fiction than a historical recounting. But, even if it's completely fictional, the set and setting gives us insight into that place, time, and culture. The fifth year of Ramses XI places it around 1185 BC, a period that's presented in the text as a sort of renaissance, how much of a renaissance this actually was is debatable. The pharaoh ruled for close to 30 years, so five years in was still early in his reign, though they didn't know it at the time, assuming the papyrus was set in real time. He was the last real ruler of the new kingdom, and the easy interpretation of that is that even if it was a new beginning in his first few years, at some point, it went downhill. There's also a lesser referenced theory that is set during the reign of his successor, Sanez I, the first ruler of the 21st dynasty, and also the first ruler of the Third Intermediate Period. Normally, I wouldn't bring any of this up, but it is relevant to the Sea Peoples. The story tells of a priest of a moon at Karnak named Winamit. He's high-ranking, but not the true high priest. That's a character named Herahor. Winamin is dispatched to the Phoenician city of Byblos, and why he's sent there is very telling of the role priests played in ancient Egyptian society, and likely most of the cultures throughout the region at the time. High priest Herahor wants to build a ship to transport an idol of a moon, the chief deity of the Egyptian empire, at least at that time. And in order to build the ship, he needs wood. So, Winamin is sent to get it. And given where he's headed, he's probably being sent to get cedar. Along the way, he stopped at Tennis, then the port of Dor. This is a city on the coast, which makes sense considering it's a port, in the northern portion of the modern country of Israel. I'll circle back to the city in a later episode, as its outside history aligns with the story. Back to Winneman. In his story, written like a letter sent back to Egypt, he tells that Dor was ruled by a Tucker prince named Better. And recall that the Tuckers were considered sea peoples, so they had control over this vital city. And considering they were seafarers, a port would be a very strategic place to control. While he was in the city, he was robbed, but he kept going. Eventually, he made it to Byblos, which is up the coast from Dor, in the modern country of Lebanon. At the time, it was under control of the Phoenicians. It's because of this location that he's thought to have been sent on a mission to retrieve cedar lumber. Things didn't get better in Byblos, where he's shocked by the hostile reception. Eventually, he gets an audience with the local ruler, referred to as a king a man named Zachar Bell. And the Bell part is telling, as recall Bell was the name of the Canaanite deity, providing further indication that Byblos was not controlled by the Sea Peoples. Then a part that gives insight into the culture of the place and time. 
He asks Zockerbell for the lumber, but the king refuses to give it to him. And the use of the word give is quite literal. He was wanting enough wood to build a ship to be provided for free. This is thought to have been the custom at that place and time. So the king refusing was both abnormal and probably a surprise and insulting. Likely the primary reason he considered his reception in the city to have been less than friendly. Instead, the king asked that he pay for the wood and Winneman didn't have the money on him, which was lucky considering he had been robbed in Dor. So he sends a letter to the pharaoh, asking that the funds be forwarded to him in Byblos. A lot can be read into this. First, the Phoenician king was unconcerned about the Egyptian empire. Asking for payment was an insult, but he didn't care about the Egyptian response. Which gets me to the second point. Egypt was no longer the regional empire it had been during the New Kingdom. It was truly an intermediate period in their history. There's almost a third point, and that's that between Egypt and Byblos, there was another kingdom, the Takar Sea Peoples. So, in order for the pharaoh to do something about the insult, he would also have to contend with them. And all of this just from a few passages in an ancient papyrus, not long after this time, the Assyrians were gaining more and more control over the region, the whole nature and vacuum thing. And this process likely was already in motion when the story was written, though at the time, no one knew how it would turn out. But for King Zacherbel, he was possibly more concerned about his position with the Assyrians and the views they had of him. So the Egyptians would have to pay for anything they wanted, Sorry, Pharaoh. The times were different, with the speed of information and payment moving no faster than a runner or horse or camel, perhaps a ship. Winneman would wait in Byblos for nearly a year. Nothing is said about if he ever got the monies to buy the wood, so the assumption is that he did not. He left, deciding to head back to Egypt via a sailing ship. But... And once again, remember that the things we take for granted, like GPS, or even a sextant used for navigation, didn't exist. They were instead at mercy of the winds, and in this case, the ship was blown way off course, all the way to Cyprus. Just to make sure I was correct, I got out my map, really a navigation chart of the Mediterranean. And from Byblos, Cyprus was to the northwest while Egypt was to the southeast, really the south-southeast. I'm sure the ship's navigator had some explaining to do. As if that wasn't bad enough, when he arrived on the island of Cyprus, he was greeted by an angry mob that nearly killed him. He had to seek protection from the local queen, Hetbai. And that's the story, ending that abruptly. In reality, I'm sure it continued on, but the papyrus where it was recorded has yet to be found. And if you think it sounds a lot like Homer's Odyssey, it does. But keep in mind that this story is thought to have been written around 1100 BC, and Homer penned his epic poem some 400 years later. 
At least that's the date of the oldest surviving copy. But there's a twist. There's only one copy of the story of Winneman, and it was not uncovered until 1890, and that's A.D., though another source says there are two. Either way, I could find no analysis of the age of the papyrus it was written on, so it could be earlier or later than Homer's work, and the similarities could just be coincidental, or not. Regardless, they are interesting. Before moving on, there is one thing of biblical importance. According to the Old Testament, the tribe of Manasseh was allotted land that included the port of Dor, and just up the coast from them, but south of Byblos. This territory was held by the tribe of Asher. So, how do we reconcile that the Egyptian text tells us that Dor was Takur, but Moses gave it to Manasseh? It's actually quite easy. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the constant strife between the Philistines, among others, and the Israelites. They took the ark, David killed the giant Philistine. Not forget that in a recent episode, I covered how the Philistines refused to share their iron technology with the Israelites, along with numerous other interactions. These people, the Philistines, and likely the Sea Peoples, who may have been one and the same, had to occupy some place. So, Moses may have told the tribe of Manasseh they could get the port of Dor, along with whatever other cities were in that area, but they didn't immediately drive out the people who were there when they arrived. And it was in this period that the lumber-seeking Winnemen arrived. Though, do note that this theory isn't directly supported in either account, but when you try to merge the two narratives together, it becomes a highly possible theory. Moving along and back to the Sea Peoples. I've mentioned the Amarna letters before. And as a refresher, they are uncovered clay tablets recording diplomatic correspondence between the Egyptian administration and its representatives in Canaan and Amaru during the New Kingdom thought to be more precisely dated to between 1360 and 1332 BC. So, before the story of Winneman, by a couple hundred years. In these letters, the Sea Peoples are referenced in four different places, including in the city of Byblos as being controlled by the son of Luca, another name associated with the Sea Peoples. But, to be clear, the name Luca at least in Egyptian records, is sometimes used with people associated with the sea, and in other cases people associated with the land. And so it goes with a legendary sort of people. Nothing is exceedingly clear. Note that when Winnemen arrived, Byblos was no longer under their control. But a couple hundred years had passed, and territory, especially in boundary regions, was constantly changing hands likely just as true then as it is today. Backing up even further, the Abishamu obelisk also makes reference to the son of Luca. This four-foot, one-and-a-quarter-meter limestone obelisk is dedicated to the Phoenician king Abishamu I of Byblos. It contains, among other writings, two lines of inscriptions in Egyptian hieroglyphs, it was inscribed around 1800 BC, though the date isn't that certain, but is generally thought to be in the range between 1000 and 1700 BC. 
The small obelisk wasn't uncovered until the 1950s. So far, this is the oldest known reference to the Sea Peoples. So, in the Old Testament timeline, this would have been around 100 years after Jacob and sons relocated to Egypt, giving the Sea Peoples more than enough time to get firmly rooted in Canaan, while the Israelites were spending their 400 years in Egypt, then 40 years of wandering. So far, all of the evidence of the Sea People that I've covered is from Egypt, and for reasons I mentioned in the last episode, they did a good job in recording their history. And in such a manner, meaning stone and papyrus, in an arid climate, that it lasted. There is some evidence from other places, but it's a bit more meager. One of these is in an Ugaritic text. Ugarit was a port city on the northeastern Mediterranean, in the modern country of Syria. These letters are thought to date to the early 12th century BC, and seem to indicate the conditions that led up to the city's impending destruction. So far, four different texts from the city have been uncovered. The first is a request from an unnamed king, thought to be the Hittite king, who is requesting that a specific man be sent to the Hittites for questioning. There's no detail on what this was all about. What we do know is that the man, named Ibadushu, is said to have lived with the Shekelah, maybe a transliteration of the word Shekelesh, which means they lived on ships. So, seafarers, and possibly the Sea Peoples, the remaining three documents are from a few years later. In the first of these, it's mentioned that a fleet of 20 ships has been spotted at sea. The next letters were a status check on the Ugaritic forces, making sure they were ready for a possible forthcoming battle, along with an inquiry as to the location of the 20 vessels. The king of Ugarit wrote a letter to the king of a neighboring city, Alassia, seeking assistance. It's unclear if this was in preparation for an impending battle, or after one had begun. Not that it mattered terribly much. It's these letters that are considered the foreshadowing of the downfall of the city, considering that not long after they were written, the city fell to the invading Sea Peoples. And it really didn't matter if the King of Alashia sent his support or not, as his city also fell shortly afterwards to the same sea-based invaders. During the fight, the king of Ugarit also sought help from the leader Carchemish. It's unclear if any was provided, though the king of Carchemish sent some encouraging words, words that made no difference. I can only imagine the Ugaritic king's look when he saw the response, probably eliciting that culture's version of an eye roll. What is clearer is that the Sea Peoples later attacked Carchemish, but somehow the home forces managed to repel the attack. So, that's enough of the mentions of these semi-legendary sea peoples from ancient sources. But I'm not quite done with them. There are a few theories on who they were and where they came from. I've only superficially touched on them in the past few episodes. And this is a good place for the deeper dive, at least as deep as the evidence allows. The first is that they arrived in the Middle East and Egypt as part of a broader regional migration. 
Evidence of this can be found on clay tablets known as the Linear B Tablets of Pelos. And a couple of things about this. First, these tablets are thought to date to about 1400 BC, and they are written in a language said to be a predecessor to Greek. This would make it one of the oldest relics of that language. They were uncovered in Crete, though the tablets changed hands many times and the exact geographic origin is unclear. The Crete theory is based on the writing being similar to other artifacts that were indeed uncovered on the island. Why I'm mentioning this now is that the tablet indicates that at the time, there were a couple of things happening in the eastern Mediterranean region. The first was increased slave raiding, and that's raiding with an R. Slave raiding is pretty much what it sounds like. A military invasion for the primary purpose of capturing people for enslavement. And the tablet shows this practice was occurring in the region at the time. Next, and very similarly, mercenary activity was spreading, both possibly related. All of this leading to the increased migration of people throughout the region. And when people leave one area, they have to resettle somewhere else. But from where did they come? There is evidence of these ancient Greeks, even a century or two before, establishing diplomatic relations and possibly even seeking employment with the ancient Egyptians. So, the big takeaway here is that the Greeks were trying to move from Crete, at least, to Egypt. So, at this point, not exactly a military invasion, but still a form of migration. I touched on this in the last few episodes, when Pharaoh Ramses II used the Sheridan in his fight against the Hittites. These may have been Sheridan slaves, our conscripts, our actual mercenaries. This theory sort of aligns with the theory that the Sea Peoples were migrating Greeks, with the primary difference being they weren't just from Crete, our slave raiders, our mercenaries, but more of a broader, general migration. Much of this is dependent on the depictions of Greek warriors from that era in Greece, along with similar depictions in Egypt. Essentially, they seem to show the same armor and helmets in both locations, in a time when different societies tended to outfit their soldiers in different gear. There's something else to this. About the same time as the Sea People showed up in the Middle East and Canaan, similar groups were appearing in Sardinia and Sicily, both islands to the west of the Italian Boot Peninsula, and therefore very west of Greece and even more west from Canaan and Egypt. Uncovered evidence on these two islands showed the immigrants were Greek-speaking, and the theory is that for whatever reason, they left Greece and fanned out all across the Mediterranean Sea, traveling there by boat. How else do you get to an island? Which raises another point. The land around Greece is very mountainous and consists of large and small islands. How many islands? Well, the current nation of Greece is estimated to have in the neighborhood of 6,000 islands. So, if you were a people native to a land with rough mountains, thousands of islands, and thick forest, how would you tend to get from place to place? You'd build wooden ships. And over time, you'd get really good at it, especially when compared to people living in flat areas without trees. 
like Egypt, or with much fewer trees, like Canaan. The residents of these places would likely be better at other things, like irrigation and building pyramids, because that's what their particular environment was geared towards. But in Greece, the sea was much friendlier. So, for now, all indications seem to point towards a Greek-speaking, seafaring people spreading out all across the eastern and central Mediterranean about the same time these conquering forces were showing up in Egypt and Canaan. There are a couple of other theories, but I've run out of time, so I'll pick up with them in the next episode. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.